So um, Jonah chapter 3. Before we go into this, this chapter, as I was, I did most of my prep for Jonah chapter 3 before we went on vacation. And then as I was praying over this passage, over this chapter during vacation, I kept coming back to this idea of what holds people back from stepping out in faith. What holds people back from stepping out of faith? Um, you know, over the years, how many hundreds of people we've, we've trained, and you ask people questions like, you know, why don't you feel comfortable sharing your faith? Or, you know, why don't you think you could ever lead a group? Or these sorts of questions we ask people. And by and large, the responses are almost always identical. And they come down to people not feeling equipped or not feeling ready, or, you know, you don't know what I struggle with, and same kinds of things over and over again. And as I was reflecting back on that, the Lord kept bringing that to my mind, that concept of, I'll just, we'll say generally speaking, our excuses, you know, our excuses for why we don't step out in faith and obeying what we feel like God is clearly telling us to do. And as I was looking at my life and I was reflecting on that and the times in my life when I shared the gospel with somebody and they responded, or when I made a decision um, that seemed kind of off the cuff for, for God, it was really in every situation be never because I was actually ready. In every situation, it was actually way above my pay grade. Now, at the moment, I probably didn't think it was above my pay grade, but if you had been a fly on the wall, you would have been like, this guy is such an idiot. And I, and I think that's important to realize because what I want to tell you guys is I have, you know, I have a 96-credit master's in, in divinity, whatever that means. I'm a master of divinity, guys, which kind of sounds like I should be on a He-Man TV show, but the more capable I became, I found this maxim to be true, that the less willing I was to act. The more I learned, I found the less willing I was to actually obey. And matter of fact, there was a period of time right after I graduated seminary when if you said to me, can you please share the gospel, you know, that Jesus Christ died to save sinners you know, that Jesus Christ died for our sins so we could be forgiven. He was raised from the dead so we could live forever, and then he sent us his Holy Spirit so we could follow him as king. If you asked me to articulate that, it took me 40 minutes because I felt like there was so much stuff in my brain that I had a hard time actually communicating the most basic things. So I found that the more I knew, the less I obeyed because I reasoned things away. Can anybody relate to that? Reality. Um, I think that we probably all can. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, and these examples are not to toot my own horn and to say, look at this. This is just an example of ignorant, I say ignorant, of ignorant faith when you're a new believer, before you know any better. Um, my, when, when I first became a believer, I was a freshman in college, and it was around January of 20. Uh, of 2000 and what year was that? 2001. 2001. And, um, and so that early on in that year, I became a believer. I started to grow. And I had made friends with Nicole and Gina, who are sisters. And they told me about this mission trip to the Czech Republic to go to Word of Life Bible Camp. 
I'd been a believer for like a month. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. I signed up for it. And we went, and I think we were supposed to go for two weeks. Um, about a week into that, or maybe 10 days into that, I just decided I wasn't going to go home. And I just was like, I'm going to stay. I don't remember trying to figure out how that was going to work. I don't think I asked permission. I don't think, I know I didn't change my flight because Brian Robinson did it for me, but I didn't ask Brian to do it. He just did it, thankfully. And I, and I just stayed. I stayed for eight weeks. Um, I had no money. I had no idea how it was going to work out. The rest of the mission team, they just kind of pitched in and covered my idiocy. But the point is that I just acted because I felt like God said, do it. And I said, okay. And I did it. In hindsight, it seems really irresponsible, the type of thing that if your kid was going to do, you try to talk them out of it. You know, but when you're new in the faith, you don't think the same way that you do once you get jaded and you kind of get beat up a little bit, right? Now, when we came back from Czech Republic, almost immediately September 11th happened. The two towers fell. And I remember I was walking back from philosophy class, contemporary moral issues, and I was coming back, the towers had just fell, our teachers just missed us, and we went out into the quad, and there was just hundreds of people milling about. And I just started open-air preaching. Um, I'd never done that before. No one taught me how. I just started doing it. It just seemed like what you should have done. Now, today, I probably would probably have said, well, you know, you don't have a permit. You didn't fill out the paperwork to do that. And I would have come up with all the reasons why I shouldn't do it right now. But at the time, I just acted. And I look at my life through college, and there was a lot of those similar kinds of things. You know, we decided we were going to start a, sun, a summer service at a church, and we just started it, and we just did it. And whoever showed up, showed up. That was in Ocean City. And, um, and that's just what we did. We just kind of acted it's not because we knew what we were doing. It's not because we were the smartest, the best, the brightest. It was just because, I don't know, we were there and we were willing. And so the question that I want to lead as we go into our time is what kind of people does God use? Because I would be willing to bet there's a lot of people in this room have a list of reasons why God won't use them or probably won't use them. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against it, call out against it, the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and he went out to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go out into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, here's his sermon, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, Jonah is structured as a book, literarily. Jonah is structured intentionally to show you in such a way that you have Jonah's first commission, chapters 1 and 2, and then you have his recommission, Jonah's second commission in chapters 3 and 4. And I love that, as Steve pointed out when we were praying before the service, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Because really, that's what God does. Over and over and over and over and over again, God is the God of second chances. And so the question, one of the questions that I was thinking about, and one of the questions I want you to think about, just as we're going through this message, is would you have given Jonah a second chance? If you were God, 
and you, you know, you were there in chapter one, would you have given Jonah a second chance? And we really have to ask ourselves, why does God give Jonah another chance at this? Why doesn't he just send another prophet, a different prophet who actually is like decent at being a prophet instead of a prophet who's an idiot? Why use Jonah? Why not just send somebody else? I mean, he can send a whale, he can send a wind, he can send a worm and a a tree, as we're going to see next chapter. And then on top of that, why does God warn the Ninevites anyway? Like, the Ninevites are wicked, they're terrible, they worship pagan gods. I mean, why doesn't God just squash them? That's certainly what Jonah wanted. It's certainly what the, any, any given Hebrew you asked, they would have wanted that same thing. And we realize that all of these questions point back to the same reality, that God is a God of grace. Now, grace is simply God giving you what you don't deserve. That's what grace is. Grace is when you is God giving what you don't deserve. And so God gives grace. He gives what you don't deserve. He gives second chances, third chances, fourth chances, etc., etc., etc. When Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, how many times a day? Not over the course of a lifetime. He says, How many times a day must I forgive my brother? And Jesus kind of metaphorically, in other words, there's no limit, says 70 times seven, Peter. In other words, a lot. A lot. There's no limit to how many times you should offer that grace. And we see throughout the scriptures that God continually shines his grace, shines his goodness, shines his forgiveness, not just on those people who acknowledge it, but he also showers it on people who don't acknowledge it. And the theological term for that is called common grace. You know, it's the fact that the sun still shines on the wicked and God still waters their crops and these sorts of things. That God is excessively good no matter who you are. But we also see in Jonah this truth that God can use anyone despite their flaws, despite their failures, to accomplish his purposes, right? You see, and then the reason I think that's important that God kept putting that on my heart as I was preparing this sermon is because I think, and I know you guys, we're not a big church, right? I know you. Um, We tend to believe the lie. We tend to believe the lie that God's going to use the strong, that he's going to use the professional, that he's going to use the charismatic, that he's going to use the erudite. He's going to use people who are gifted in these various ways. But the reality is that simply isn't the case, at least not exclusively. You see, God uses people. And counter to what you might see on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, everybody's a hot mess, okay? We were joking about it on the plane because a couple of rows back, you had this mom, and her kid kept kicking Steve's chair, and she's like, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you. You need to stop. You need to listen to me the first time. And I turned back to the lady, and I said, I'm just glad we're all in the same boat. Because it's literally like any given parent could have been having that conversation with their children. We're all in the same boat. Nobody has their act together You know, everybody is trying to figure it out. God uses people, messed up people. He uses broken people. He uses weak people. He uses ignorant people to accomplish his unstoppable purposes because it's his work. It's not your work. It's not your awesomeness. 
It's his work. You know, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was a terrorist. He became a follower of Christ. You know, when you read Paul's writings, especially like 2 Corinthians, when he's defending his leadership and his apostleship, you realize that apparently Paul wasn't a very gifted speaker. Now, you look at his writing and you think to yourself, this guy is a great communicator. But just because the man could write doesn't mean he could communicate for whatever reason. Maybe he was awkward in front of people. I don't know what it was. But whatever the thing was, they said, here's Paul. He's weak in the way that he talks. But look how God used Paul. You had the apostle Peter who had a serious case of foot and mouth disease. He was always saying things wrong and then kind of reaping the consequences. You had John Mark right? Maybe you remember John Mark. He's in the book of Acts. John Mark, who Paul and Barnabas have a blowout fight over John Mark because John Mark leaves halfway through their mission trip to go home to his mom, right? Because he was scared or who knows what was going on. He couldn't sleep and forgot his blankie. We don't know. I'm assuming it's the blankie, right? But the point is that these are weak men, These aren't superheroes. These aren't superstars. These are weak people. You know, we, for example, I I like sharing this because it makes people uncomfortable. When we look at the spies, you know, it says that God sent the spies into Jericho. And then it says the spies, they were supposed to check out, like, just make sure everything, like, see what the what, what was, you know what I mean? And then they go, does anybody remember where they go? Whose house do they go to? Rahab. What, What was Rahab's job? She was a prostitute. You think they were just like dropping off the mail? Okay? God uses broken people. He uses broken people. God takes the weak, the sinful, the broken, the undeserving. He uses them to shame the strong, and he can use you too. And so Jonah arose. That's what we see. So Jonah arose. Now, if you were here last week, In chapter 2, when Dave Walker was preaching, you see Jonah's repentance, right? It is repentance, but it's super thin, isn't it? Like you read Jonah's repentance and you're kind of like, are you really sorry, Jonah? Are you really sorry? Or are you just mad because you got swallowed by a big fish? And so even Jonah's repentance, although it seems thin, God acknowledges it. You know, God is honored by a mustard seed of faith, by mustard seed of faith, which is really small, because it's not about the size of your faith, but it's about the object of the faith, right? And one of my favorite stories is in 2 Kings, when Ahab, who's one of the most vile kings, he repents for a minute, like he repents for a minute and maybe it's the end of First Kings. Obviously, it's not my, one of my favorite stories. All right? And so then God goes to Elijah, and he says to Elijah about Ahab, who's a total scoundrel. He goes to Elijah, Elijah, have you seen my servant Ahab? And I mean, he crushes him a little bit later. But the point is that that mustard seed of repentance, that mustard seed of faith, God acknowledges it. You see, Faith and repentance, it's not about proving your merit. It's not about arm wrestling with God. It's about refocusing on the one who deserves your focus. That's why elsewhere the psalmist says, stop striving. Be still. Could be translated, stop striving. 
So we get back to Nineveh. It says in the Hebrew, Nineveh was a great city to God three days journey. That's how it's worded in the Hebrew. Um, and most scholars think that idea of a three days journey means that it took three days to see the sights. But what's interesting is that in the original Hebrew, or the Masoretic text, more aptly stated, in the Masoretic text, in that Hebrew, it says that Nineveh was a great city to God. It was a great city to God. And there is some debate here, but it could imply that God values the Ninevites. That here's this city, but it's a great city to God. That in the midst of all of their sin, in the midst of all of their wickedness, this is a great city to God. In other words, God values and puts merit on this city, and that's why he sent Jonah to proclaim. And so what does Jonah proclaim? He says, you will be overthrown in 40 days. He gives the worst sermon on the planet. He's half-hearted. I kind of expect him to be like, you're going to be overthrown in 40 days. And he just kind of keeps walking. Now, overthrown is interesting. Now, by the way, 40 days is a common number in the Bible. You see that all over the place, right? It basically refers to a, de a long period of indefinite time. The idea that it's longer than a, a lunar cycle, but it's shorter than a season. And so, in other words, it's on the horizon. And, but that word overthrown is a word play in the Hebrew. It's the same word that's used to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, but it can have two connotations. Negatively, it is to turn down or to bring low or to overthrow. But if the context of the word use is positive, it's similar to this idea of repentance, like a change of heart. And so you're either turning it over this, you're either turning over a new leaf or you're getting turned over. Does that make sense? And so it's possible even here, as we see in light of God's character, next chapter, that God's message through Jonah has a hint of a positive outcome, that it's not just judgment he's pronouncing, but it's an invitation. And so let's see how they respond. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth. From the greatest of them to the least of them, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. He sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. This was his decree. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn, there's that word, and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. So what happens? Nineveh repents. Nineveh repents. They change, they turn, they overthrow their heart and their mind and their actions. Now, you have to realize that verse 5 is a shocking verse. It's a shocking verse. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, let's look back at Jonah's sermon. You will be overthrown in 40 days. What did the people of Nineveh know about God? 
at this point in time based upon the expansive oratory prowess of Jonah. Not a whole lot. Matter of fact, the Ninevites had less information from Jonah about God than the sailors did in chapter 1. Yet God accepted their faith. God accepted their faith. It says they believed God. And so in the midst of their imperfect belief, in the midst of their ignorant belief, in the midst of their limited belief, they did believe. Now, the word believe today is very metaphorical. We say things like, you know, I believe the children of the future. You got to teach them well, but let them lead the way. You know, you say, I believe in the power of love. I believe in the tooth fairy. We believe in all kinds of things, but belief originally referred to this idea of something firm and sturdy and stable. And so despite their limited knowledge of Elohim, which is the Hebrew word used here, and despite their little experience with the Jewish faith, and despite their limited time to process, and despite their limited everything, their belief was genuine. They heard Jonah's words and they believed God would indeed overthrow them, which is why they respond the way that they do. How do they react? They overturn their hearts. They repent, which means to change your direction, change your mind. They humble themselves. They fast. They wear sackcloth, like burlap sacks. It's the latest trend. The king hears, he responds in the same way. He doesn't dismiss this as like some, you know, petty thing that the crowds follow. The king responds as well. They are so serious in their repentance that they make their cattle wear burlap sacks so that the cattle will repent as well. And I want you to realize, because I know it's the new year, pretty soon it's going to be Lent, this isn't a Daniel fast where you can still eat vegetables and quinoa. Okay? This is no food, no water in Iraq. Okay? Pre-air conditioning. It's serious repentance. And the king says, and while you're at that, call out mightily to God. And by the way, turn from all of the stupid things you're doing. This is true repentance. You cannot help but comparing this to Jonah's repentance. See, this isn't, well, I got swallowed by a sea dragon, so I guess I'm sorry. That's Jonah's repentance. This is, dear God, what have we done? This is, I am undone, and so I'm overthrowing myself. I'm tilling the soil on top of myself so that I can be humbled. What do we learn from their repentance? It's quick. It's sincere. What do we see from Jonah's repentance? It was slow, and it was thin at best. Do not miss the literary contrast. The ESV exegetical commentary points this out. It says, it took three days for Jonah to reach the point where he could utter his prayer of thanksgiving and repentance to the Lord. But here when Jonah is only on day one of a city that takes three days to visit, the people are already turning to the Lord. First the sailors, now the Ninevites, are far more spiritually sensitive and humble 
than the Hebrew prophet himself. It's pretty fascinating. And so how's God going to respond? Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God recommissions Jonah. Jonah preaches the world's worst sermon. The Ninevites repent, and God relents. And this is what happens. Seeing that they had turned from their evil way, God decided not to overturn them. Nineveh repented, and God relented. Now, interestingly enough, that word relent is used also in, I think it's Exodus 32, when God relents from destroying the Israelites because Moses intercedes for them. And then God, in Exodus 34, he describes himself with the same words Jonah is going to use to describe God in Jonah chapter 4. And so, in other words, in Jonah 3 and 4 and Exodus 32 and 34, you see the relenting and then the proclamation of who God is. He's merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We'll mention that more next week. Where am I? So you have to remember that the original chapter breaks are not in the Bible, right? Those aren't original. They were there um, from much later. So the section, though, this section has us end wondering, as we finish up chapter 3, we wonder, what is Jonah going to learn from this experience? Because if you're Jonah and you just went through the belly of a big fish, right, and you took three days to repent and then you have these Ninevites and they repented, what's Jonah thinking? What's, jo what's going on in Jonah's heart? What's he going to learn from this experience? He has experienced the judgment of God. He's experienced the mercy of God. He's received the call of God. He's seen God work wonderfully. I mean, there's 120,000 people plus a bunch of cattle who live in Nineveh, and they repent, and it spreads to the, you know, the king who's not necessarily in Nineveh. And so Jonah, with his half sermon, accomplishes by God's power more than any of us will probably ever see. And you say to yourself, Jonah's going to learn something from this, right? Well, so we end this chapter with an implied ponderance. Will Jonah be delighted that the Ninevites have experienced the same mercy and grace he has tasted and prepare to be disappointed in chapter 4? And so that's chapter 3. Chapter 3, Jonah comes. He's recommissioned. He preaches the world's worst sermon. They respond, overwhelmingly respond, and God relents. So what am I thinking about? That's the question. What I've been thinking about is how the story of Jonah would have been very different if I were in charge. That's what I've been thinking about. The story of Jonah would have been very different if I were in charge. And I'm going to be, I'll be candid with you guys. One, I probably wouldn't have warned Nineveh. They, I think they had it coming, right? I probably wouldn't have warned Nineveh. They seem like a bunch of idiots. Um, I probably wouldn't have given Jonah a second chance. He needed a spanking. 
right? And so he needed to get swallowed by a giant sea beast. I definitely wouldn't have used him after the fact with that sour attitude because when you tell me you're sorry, I want to see like a track record that you meant it, right? And so I don't think that Jonah would have played out the same way if I were God. And the difference between me and God, although they are many, in this particular situation, the differences between us identify something in me. And what they identify in me is a self-righteousness in my heart. Self-righteousness. You see, I know the biblical answer. Oh, God uses broken people and broken vessels, and the more cracks you have, the more light shines through. Okay, I get it, all right? He uses people who don't deserve it. He uses people who don't ask for it. I've seen the memes, okay? I also, practically speaking, if I'm being candid, and I will represent you too, because I know what you say at your kitchen tables, I also operate as if God uses people who do deserve it, and people who have their act together, and people who are competent. And so we can say one thing with our mouth, because we know it's the right Christian answer to give. But the truth is, when you look at other people who've made a mess for you themselves, there's a part of you that says, don't be an idiot. And so in those moments, we feel competent that we aren't as idiotic as they are. And so the question that I was praying about all week is that does God use the correct or does God use the willing? Now, at least one person in the room, as soon as I said that, they thought to themselves, well, you can be correct and willing. And yes, stop correcting me in your mind. You've already revealed which camp you're in. So pay attention, okay? As I was thinking about Jonah, I was thinking about a story from Mark, and it's kind of a funny little story. And basically what happens is Jesus is there, he's hanging out, and his apostles, they come over to Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, we got to tell you something. And Jesus is like, what? What's going on? And they say, well, we were just over there, and there were these guys who were using your name to cast out demons. They're not even part of our group. So we told them to stop. And Jesus says, look, anybody who's not against me is for me. And no one, after doing something great in my name, is going to go out and slander me. And then if you jump forward a few verses, this is what Jesus says. He says, but if you cause even the least of these little ones, and I think he's referring to those little in faith there, he says, if you cause even the least of these little ones to sin, I tell you what, you're going to wish someone tied a millstone around your neck and threw you into the ocean. And I was thinking about that story because what I've experienced in church planting and ministry and being part of organizations and coaching leaders and debating leaders and these sorts of things, I think what I've seen time and time and time and time again is that there are two types of people 
there are people who want things done right, and there's people who want things done regardless. And there's a tension between those two camps, which I think is a biblical tension. Because the one tension pulls us towards order, which is needed, and the other pulls us towards action, which is needed. We need people who want it done right, and we, want, we need people who want it done regardless. I would venture to guess that most people think that God will not do anything spectacular through them. I think that most people don't think God is ever going to do anything spectacular through them. And I think, like I said earlier, it's because they say, I don't deserve to be used. I don't know enough. I'm not a pastor. I never went to seminary. I'm not a missionary, whatever it might be. But I think that Jonah and the entirety of the scriptures prove all of those reasons false. That God uses people who don't deserve to be used, as we see in Jonah. That God uses people who don't have enough knowledge and faith, as we see in the Ninevites. And he uses people who don't fit the bill of what we think they should look like, as is evident time and time and time again in this book. I would like to suggest that you go back to your homework from Jonah chapter 1. I know at least one of you did it because you texted me about it. What was the last thing that God commanded you to do which you've yet to obey? And what is your continual excuse? See, when we read the Bible, we see God doing extraordinary things through very ordinary, boring people. But in every single scenario, the person obeyed what the Spirit told them to do. You know, as I think about it, I was, like I said, I've been reading the book of Acts in my own personal time, and you had um, Barnabas who arrives on the scene, and the first thing we learn about Barnabas is he had a plot of land and he sold it, and he gave it to the early church. He gave it to the apostles to be distributed. You know, we see that, uh, that he obeyed the Holy Spirit who prompted him to do that. The apostles didn't force him to do it. We see that later in Acts chapter 5 when Peter says, basically, we didn't tell you to sell this property, Ananias. We see that um, Peter's, in Acts chapter 10, Peter has this vision of a tent going down. Actually, before that, let's go back to Acts chapter 9. Paul is struck by light. He's blind. God tells him that he's got to go into the city. And then there's this guy in the city. And God says to him, you got to go talk to that guy, Saul, who's going to be Paul, about Jesus. And he's like, I'm not talking to that guy. That guy kills Christians. But he obeyed the Holy Spirit, and he becomes the guy who has the privilege of leading Saul to the Lord. And then we see in Acts chapter 10, Peter sees a vision, and God says, some people are going to come. You're going to get up with them, and you're going to go. And Peter obeys the Holy Spirit. We see that Paul has a dream where someone from Macedonia says, you need to come to me. And Paul says, okay, I'm going to go. We see continually that there's just a response to the Holy Spirit, a response to the Holy Spirit, a response to the Holy Spirit, and that God continually, work, continually works through their obedience 
These are people who obeyed when they had a messy background. These are people who obeyed when they had a lack of experience. These are people who obeyed when they had a lack of education. It's literally what the Pharisees said about Peter. They said, look at this uneducated fisherman. So I don't know what Peter was doing, using a lot of double negatives as he talked, but they knew he was uneducated by the way he acted. And they were struck by his boldness, and he just had healed the guy's legs by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see these people obey with limited knowledge. And you see these guys continually obey when they have no guarantee of what's going to happen. They just obeyed. But if you don't obey, do you know what's going to happen? You can say, nothing. Nothing's going to obey. Nothing's going to happen. If you don't obey, nothing will happen. At least you won't get the privilege and the joy of having God use you. You know, I think, and I say this from personal experience, we get so hung up on the what ifs and the what abouts and the what if I pray for this person's healing and nothing happens because we have an incredibly demented understanding of the way things work. We have no theology of failure. You need a theology of failure. Even if 90% of the times these things don't work, we pray anyway. And we expect that sometimes that nothing will happen, but that doesn't stop us from praying. We obey and stepping out in faith. And we don't worry about the what ifs and the what abouts and what am I going to do about it? And what am I going to do about that? And what happens if this happens? And what happens if in a year this happens? And what happens if this changes? And what if there's a dramatic turn of events? And then we wind up in analysis paralysis doing nothing for five years and we look back and we say, I've wasted my life on what could have happened. And I've done nothing the last six years because I was paralyzed because I refused to walk forward in faith because in my control idolatry, I need to have it all figured out. You know I'm right. That's what we do. Jonah's obedience is the most pathetic obedience on the planet. And look what God did. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Listen, I have to be honest with you guys. When the pandemic hit, I really thought that all of the training and preparation that Revolve had been doing, I thought that was going to be when we just were going to see things pop. People were going to be leading their friends to the Lord. Groups were going to start starting all over the county. I really thought that was going to happen. It didn't happen. As for me... I have come to realize that I, I no longer do I attempt nor expect God to do big things. Because me, like you, we become jaded over time. And the optimism of our youth is dead and gone. And all of those amazing things, those are for the books and for the people with better faith than I and more abs, and whatever else they need. And now I'm 41, and I'm too practical, and I'm too pragmatic, and I'm too dogmatic, and I would guess you are too. One, there's a guy a while back named William Carey. 
he grew up in England. He was about 30 years old when he started feeling a stirring for the unreached people groups of the world. In a time when nobody in England was going onto the mission field, he formed an organization, and he went out as the first Baptist missionary to India. Now, when he arrived in India, he was 32 years old. He didn't have the proper permits. He didn't have the necessary paperwork. He just went because he felt like God said, you got to go. And so he obeyed. He spent 40 years in India, and his obedience was like dropping a rock into a pond, and the ripples just kept going out and out and out. William Carey now in history is known as the father of modern missions because he started a wave that impacted and sparked missionary movements all over the world. Now, William Carey, in a time when we didn't have FaceTime and we didn't have health insurance and we didn't have all these different things, but we did have like scurvy and all kinds of weird diseases that you had to like drink rum instead of water or you died, right? All of that kind of stuff, he obeyed. He just went. Despite the what ifs, despite the whatabouts, and despite all the question marks. And he was famous for a very simple statement that he said in one of his final messages before he left. And he said this, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Imagine if William Carey didn't go. Imagine if he said, well, I don't read Sanskrit. I don't even have the proper travel documents. My documents keep getting lost in the mail. I don't know. I don't know what to do about it. Imagine if he didn't act. God would have sent somebody else, I guess. What is God calling you to do that you're so afraid to obey? Listen, you need to stop trying to figure out the details. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you need to stop trying to figure out the details. Maybe God's telling you to go. Maybe God's telling you to stay. Gina will tell you that one of the big wrestles of my heart early on, over a decade ago, was that I was willing to go, but I wasn't willing to stay. Maybe God wants you to stay. Maybe God wants you to share. Maybe God wants you to give. Maybe he wants you to sell, to move. I don't know, to start something. I don't know what it is. But maybe you shouldn't be afraid to ask him what it is. Because you might not be capable, but the spirit of Christ in you raised Jesus from the dead. And so stop trying to do the impossible with your own power and attempt the impossible with God's power, not for your glory, but for his. He's a good father, and he gives good gifts. He doesn't give his child a scorpion and say, gotcha, you thought it was bread. That's not the way he works. He's eager to give his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, um, I pray that you would just lead us into your presence, lead us into your goodness, that we would become accustomed to being eager to obey you and whatever that might be. And Lord, I, I, I ask, like I prayed earlier, we give you permission to disrupt us, to challenge us. 
we give you complete authority in our lives. And so, Father, speak to us, even to me, speak to all of us. Lord, what are you telling us to do?